All right, uh, Luke 17. Luke 17, we're going to finish up the section dealing with um, uh, the end times and the judgment of the end times this morning. And uh, and hopefully, uh, as we go through here, we're going to be unraveling a lot of mysteries. There's a lot of stuff here, but it's really fascinating. So I think you're going to find this uh, quite wonderful and amazing. At least I did. If you take in the news a little bit, you've probably uh, heard more people talking about one world government. Uh, For instance, uh, uh, according to Forbes Online Magazine, April 29th, 2010, so this is just a week ago, um, it it says, quote, the president of the European Central Bank, Jean-Claude Trichet, told Forbes that global governance is extremely necessary if we want to prevent another financial crisis, end quote. So here we have a statement by a pretty major player in the um, financial realm saying that what we really need is a one-world government. And, you know, a while back you would think, no, no, we're not going to have a one-world government. The Bible says we're going to, but it just didn't seem very likely, well, it's becoming more likely. About a year ago, someone gave me a children's book uh, called War and Peace by Tony Goff. And uh, it targets those who are about three to six years of age. It's a, you know one of those typical children's books with a glossy cover and bright colors and lots of pictures and few words. And uh, it talks about, you know, families disagree and they need to do this in a nice way. And, and sometimes neighbors disagree and they need to do this in a nice way. And sometimes politicians and political parties and finally it gets to countries disagree and, and war is never the answer. And, and it has a strong anti-war, anti-weapon message uh, that it gives over and over again. Uh, those who join the military are really kind of crazy and silly and we shouldn't be fighting each other and we should just be nice and be good to each other and talk things out. And at this point, any adult reader who is not exceedingly naive will be thinking to themselves, well, peace is good. But what about all the evil men in the world who want to rob people and plunder people and mass murder them and oppress them for their own selfish purposes? We just going to lay down our arms and let those people ruin their li- ruin our lives and the lives of other people? You see, the solution is then given in this book. And here's the solution. Quote, it may take centuries for nations to learn to resolve disputes peacefully. There may be a need for a world government with sufficient military strength at its command. Powerful nations may need to cede control of weapons. Now, just stop there. You ever heard cede? Any kids say cede? Um, I was just thinking that's a pretty big word, isn't it? Yeah, seed that peanut butter and jelly sandwich over here. Um, it just, it's a pretty big word. The reason they used that word is they didn't really want to say what they meant, which was take away the weapons of stronger nations by force. It goes on, quote, weaker nations may agree not to arm. A peacekeeping force will keep armies apart, end quote. So all of this, when interpreted, means push for a one-world government with a one-world army that forces the powerful nation to give up their arms and with absolute power will be the first case in history where absolute power will not corrupt. 
1990, when communism in Russia fell, everyone was kind of rejoicing because democracy has had another triumph. But you know, democracy usually leads to materialism, greed, indulgence, and that's not working very well either, is it? Freedom, democracy, fair trade only work when freedom is restrained by biblical morals. Democracy only works when it's carried out by honest men. And fair trade only works when it's carried out by the rules of fair trade. And the two most important and critical factors that intersect with what's going on in the world that are uh, I've never mentioned. You just you can listen to the news until you petrified in your chair and you wouldn't hear these. And they are the most important things that need to be talked about. The first is the depravity of man. That is a problem. If you are trying to talk about how to make the world a good place, you have to find out how to deal with the depravity of man. Men are sinners. Men are selfish. Men are greedy, murderous beings. And when given the opportunity, they usually do what's wrong. Secondly, they overlook the important fact that God is all sovereign. And in the words of Isaiah, has declared the end from the beginning. And this tells us that, yes, men are evil, so human solutions will not work. The government can't save you. Politics can't save you. An economic plan can't save you. What you need is a savior to save you. And that history is not cyclical, repeating itself. It's not random, you know, ping-ponging off of one random thing after another. It is purposeful. We're an all-sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful God is moving history to his intended purposes. As was drilled into me in my seminary days, the telos of history is doxological. Which when I looked that up, I discovered that meant... The end of history is to bring praise and glory to God. The telos, the end of history is doxological, that which brings praise and glory to God. That is where the Bible is headed. And that's what we get a glimpse of when we look into the prophetic portions of the end times. As Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, things will proceed from bad to worse. And that's what we've been learning in Luke 17 verses 22 and following as Jesus focuses primarily on the judgment that will fall upon wicked men during the end times. Now, you might be thinking out, out there to yourself, why do we have to talk about this? Why does Jesus teach us about it? Why doesn't it just happen? You know, what is the purpose of telling us that judgment is coming, you know, and flee from the wrath to come? Well, there are several good reasons. First, because it gives Christians hope. Those Christians who are living in the end times will realize that, yes, they're going to be rescued from the judgments, from the death, from the plagues, the famines, from the wrath of the Antichrist, etc. Secondly, it motivates believers to live their lives for Christ because who wants to be engaging in their favorite sin when Jesus shows up? So there is a lot of discussion in the New Testament about making sure knowing Christ can come at any moment to be doing what he would have you be doing. 
Third, it motivates Christians to share the gospel. When you see the judgments that are coming upon the world of ungodly men, and you know you're an ungodly person, and that you've been saved by grace, that you realize, you know what, I was... I was just lost like all the rest of the lost people. I was living my life for myself like all the rest of the lost people. I didn't want to submit to God just like all the rest of the lost people. And then I came in contact with the gospel. And by the grace of God, I was saved. When you understand that, that we're all sinners, we're all humanity, none of us deserves to be saved, and that there's going to be judgment for those who don't know Christ, it makes you want to get out there and say, can I talk to you about Jesus? And fourth and finally... It threatens the wicked to repent and believe or else be swept away with judgment. So these are the purposes that Jesus is pulling his disciples aside. He's pulled them aside. And we are looking into this conversation because it's for us as well. So starting in Luke chapter 17, verse 22, Jesus tells the disciples they will long to see the days of the son of man, but they're not going to see him. Because he's not going to come back on their generation. So when Jerusalem falls and all that terrible thing happens, then they're going to wish they could see him. But no, it's for a future generation. And he says that generation needs to be careful because if they say, here's the Christ and there is the Christ. Don't, don't, don't go there. Jesus says, when I come back, no one's going to wonder what's happening. No one's going to miss it. No one's going to sleep through it. Every eye. We'll see it. It will be a global revealing. You say, well, how does that work? God can do anything. I don't know. Um, He'll reflect Jesus off the atmosphere. I'm not sure. I don't know. Um, But every eye, it will be clear like lightning from east to the west. And then he warned them that there's going to be a time where they're going to have to run for their lives. That if they're on the roof of their house sunning themselves on their sun deck or in the evening enjoying the cool breeze. There's going to be a time when their lives are in such serious peril that they should just run down and run to the east. Or if they're in the field plowing or whatever and they learn about some certain time, they're going to have to run to the east. Why? Well, because to the east of Judea is the Jordan Rift, and then up the other side are the desert regions, the mountains of Moab and Edom. And that is where God is going to protect the Jews during the last half of the tribulation. When the abomination of desolation occurs, that is when the Antichrist, halfway through the tribulation, those seven years preceding the second coming of Christ, declares himself to be God, defiles the temple. He then says, wipe out the Jews. Why? Because the Jews aren't going to worship him. And Jesus says, when that happens, run for your life and We know that God, we learned last week, that God is actually going to provide some sort of air transport. Well, this would be angelic transport or, I don't know, you know, Star Trek beaming, um, helicopters. I don't know. But he's going to transport them. They are going to fly over there so they don't have to go all the way down the Dead Sea and up the other side. And there they will be protected by God for three and a half years until Christ returns in glory. So this is a little bit what we've been learning. And we're going to continue on this morning where we left off in a text that has a lot of little mysteries in it. And we're going to solve them this morning. So look at Luke chapter 17 and we'll read verses 34 through 37. Jesus says, I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other 
will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken. The other will be left. And answering, they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Now, from this text, there's really two items you need to consider. First, examples of judgment. And secondly, the location of judgment. And let's just first start by looking at these examples of judgment. Look at verse 34. I tell you that on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. So picture in your mind, a married couple, there's a believer and an unbeliever. They've made it through the tribulation, the trials, all these things that are happening and uh, they're in bed and all of a sudden one is taken and the other's left. It goes on verse 35, there will be two women grinding in the same place. One will be taken and the other will be left at that time. If you know, you wanted to get some flour, uh, you just took some grain down to the local mill. There was a big upper and lower millstone with a hole in the center of the upper millstone. They would pour in the grain there. The millstone would be turned as it was turned. The grain would be ground into flour and come out the sides would be collected and you'd get that. So there's a time where you're standing around and it says that's happening. Uh, you know, Jesus could have said two women were sitting in the laundry mat surfing the internet on their laptops but that wouldn't have been understood so they're grinding wheat and one is taken and the other is left look at verse 36 now if you have the english standard version or the new international version verse 36 isn't in your bible which i will explain in a minute if you have the nasb you'll notice that it's in brackets And if you have the new King James version or the King James version, you'll notice it's just there. You're probably asking yourself, well, why do some versions contain verse 36 and other versions don't? Why does the NASB put it in brackets with a little footnote and other versions just have it in there? Well, let me explain. For thousands of years, the Bible was copied by hand. And sometimes those copyists made mistakes. This is a a particular kind of mistake. It's called um, uh, accidental harmonization. You see, in Matthew chapter 24, verses 40 and 41, it says this, two men are in the field, one is taken, another is left, and two women are grinding at the mill, and one is taken and the other is left. And so it uses two men are in the field, one is taken and the other left in this parallel text. Well, scribes at that time were very familiar with the Bible, had much of the Bible memorized. And so sometimes if you were copying a familiar text, you would accidentally insert something from a parallel text. There would be an accidental harmonization. And that is what occurred here. Let me just give you an example. This is kind of fun. Let's just, uh, let me take a text that is really well known that you all know. And, uh, and we'll, I'll, I'm going to pause and, and you just fill in the gaps. Okay. Here is the Lord's prayer, or the disciples prayer. So when you pray, Pray. Okay, wrong. Just Father. So, Father who is in heaven, right? Wrong. 
hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Wrong. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for yourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And you may be thinking, well, doesn't it say trespasses or debts and debtors? No. And lead us not in temptation, but wrong. Because I'm reading from Luke chapter 11, verses 2 through 4. And you filled in from Matthew 6. You see, it's almost irresistible, isn't it? To fill in those gaps. Everybody know it's our father. And even if you have a modern version, it's still who art in heaven. It just, it just sounds art is better than are, right? And, and you just want to say, hallowed be your name. You just want to say who is in heaven, then hallowed be your name, and then your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. You just want, you just, it just, it just draws you in. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You want to put that in there. But really the text doesn't say that. Deliver us from evil. You just, you just want to put in there for yours is the power and the kingdom and the glory forever and ever. You just want to put that in there, right? I mean, it's good. But the text says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation, period. In Luke. So you could see if you were translating Luke, how it would be very easy to do an accidental harmonization. Well, if you're a scribe and you really know the whole Bible, it's very easy to do that. And this is one of those cases. That is why it's not, it doesn't appear in the SV and the NIV. Because they were translating and none of the earliest manuscripts the oldest manuscripts the earliest being the closest to the time when they were were originally written none of those really old ones contain that verse you say well then how come the new king james and king james have it and they don't even have a bracket on it because the king james version was translated and they only had later manuscripts where it had been added in and those are the only ones they have the New American Standard realizes, you know, some people are going to read this and say, where is it? So let's put in brackets and we'll put a footnote. So that's what they did. So mystery solved. The good thing is, is it does appear in Matthew 24, verse 40. So we'll just comment on it anyways. All right. And so here you have this statement. You've got people in the field and one is taken and another left. You have people grinding and one is taken and another left. Two people in bed, one is taken and another left. And the whole point is, is... They're taken, right? They're taken. Now, this is going to be so fun. As soon as you read that, what is the? what do you think comes to mind? They're taken because of the rapture. They're raptured out of there, man. They're, they're out of there. And you know what? This is our first point of Bible study that we need to be careful of. Be very careful not to assume you understand a text upon first reading. Because a lot of times we'll read a text and we'll say, well, obviously it just seems to be talking about the rapture. And you're right, because one's taken, right? And so the principle is, is whenever you study the Bible, try to lay aside your biases and your assumptions. And though we all have biases and assumptions, 
We can't lay them aside perfectly, but we need to try to do so as best we can. We interpret a passage so the passage speaks to us and we can not have our eyes blinded by what we assume it says before studying. And so let's just say it's the rapture. So now let's look at a couple rapture texts. We'll see if those rapture texts actually do support what we see here. So let's look at. First Corinthians chapter 15. If you want to turn there, this is one of the key rapture texts. This whole chapter 15 is on the resurrection. False teachers came in and said, no, there is no resurrection. And so Paul had to write back and said, yes. And the whole chapter is an argument for the resurrection, that it's a cardinal doctrine, that if Christ has not been raised, then we're not going to be raised. We're still in our sin. And Christianity is just a farce. But notice what he says in first Corinthians 15 verse 50 through 53 he says now i say i say this brethren that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of god nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable in other words if you're going to heaven if you're going to be resurrected you're not going to take your mortal body with you you need a new one which is pretty obvious and thankfully the older you get the more thankful you are verse 51 behold i tell you a mystery this is a critical Word, this word mystery here, it's used a few times in the New Testament. It refers to information that has never before been given. This is new doctrine, new information, cool little stuff. I'm going to tell you, in other words, a secret, a mystery. What is it, Paul? We'll not all sleep, but we will all be changed. What do you mean? Well, we're not going to all sleep. Asleep is a euphemism for death. It's used there. We're not all going to die. Some of us are going to be walking around. We're going to leave church. It's going to be Sunday, Mother's Day. We're going to be walking from the church building to our car. And we will be changed. It's like, really? Well, Mother's Day thing isn't, you can't see it in there. It's in the white spaces. Um <laughs> And he said, well, how fast is this going to happen? Well, it's going to happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and perishable and we will be changed. So now it says, not only are we going to be instantaneously changed in a twinkling of an eye, which I don't know how fast that is, but it's fast. But the dead in Christ will also going to be raised. And this is new. This is new. I mean, there's going to be people who are going to be actually walking around and all of a sudden instantaneously they're going to receive glorified bodies and change that the dead are going to be raised from the dead, resurrected and perishable. And we're going to be changed in that same way. Yeah. Verse 53 for this perishable must put on imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. So you say, cool. So if you studied the resurrection, you know that the resurrection is spoken of in the Old Testament and in the New Testament before this. Paul is revealing some new data here, new doctrine, this doctrine of the instantaneous change and rapture resurrection of believers at a certain point. He doesn't say what it is. 
The Old Testament usually said things like, uh, I'm just going to read uh, John chapter 5, verses 20 and 29. I know this is in the Old Testament. This captures what the Old Testament teaches. Do not marvel at this, Jesus says, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come for those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So resurrection was already taught, is already known before Paul wrote this down. And so you're saying, okay, so in the Jews already knew, the disciples already knew, everybody already knew about resurrection of both unbelievers and believers at some point in time. But Paul says, there is something I'm going to tell you that's new. And that is, there's going to be a sequence where believers, some believers are going to still be alive. They're going to walk around and be instantaneously changed, not before the unbelievers who the dead in Christ will raised and perishable. Then we will be changed and raised after them. So that's all we know from that text. But turn to first Thessalonians. This is another text on what's going to happen in what is often known as the rapture of the saints. By the way, the word rapture comes from the Latin version of the Greek word harpazo. Um, uh, the, the, the word, the Greek word is the word we get harpoon from. I just think of, you know, fishermen standing on the deck and kind of, you know, stabbing fish and jerking them into the boat. They're snatching them out of the water, right? With a harpoon. Well, thankfully God doesn't spear believers, but he does snatch them away. He harpoons them, so to speak, from this earth into heaven. And so this is what Paul is writing about in First Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. Some more false teachers have come in and said, oh, the day of the Lord has already happened. It's already gone. And you're saying, really? He said, yes, the day of the Lord has already happened and it's gone away. And Paul writes this. But we do not want you to be un- uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Again, those who have died, a euphemism for death. So that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So far, really nothing new has been given. All all we're being told here is that um, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. God's going to bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So in other words, those who have died will be resurrected. Okay, that's pretty much all Old Testament knowledge. Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, this is a little bit of new information. It it tells the sequence. It tells that, yes, there's going to be people alive. And what's going to happen is they are going to be resurrected. It's not going to be until after those who are already dead or asleep are resurrected, but they will be. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven 
with the shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Here's the sequence. Then we who are alive and remain, that walking around on earth alive, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And we know from 1 Corinthians 15 that when we are caught up, we receive immortal, imperishable bodies just like Christ after his resurrection. So this is the rapture. This is the rapture, the catching away of the church. Now, let's just talk about something, a few Bible study principles that can help us understand is, is our text in Luke 17 talking about the rapture or is it talking about something else? Well, see if you can follow this. There is a Bible study principle called progressive revelation. You say, well, what's that? Well, progressive revelation means that over the course of time, God reveals more and more information to us about different subjects. For instance, if you just take Jesus, you have the first mention of him. He's alluded to in Genesis 3.15. The woman's seed would crush the serpent's head. And that's all we know. Later on in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis, we are told that this um, in Abraham's seed, speaking of Christ, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then later on, we are told in, in the end of Genesis that um, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. So now we know that he's going to be from Judah. And then in Exodus, he's pictured as the lamb that is slain in, in the Passover. And so these are the kinds of things as you go through the Bible, if you look at it as kind of a wedge, you see that more as the wedge gets bigger, more and more information is added as the scriptures progress. We aren't told every Everything in the first chapter of Genesis, revelation progresses. Now, here's the principle. If you're studying this passage at this point in the Bible, and later on afterwards, a doctrine is revealed, you cannot take that doctrine and freight it back into a text when it wasn't revealed yet. That would be to violate the doctrine of progressive revelation. So, if Paul revealed the doctrine of the rapture, it was a mystery until 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus could not be speaking of it in Luke 17. Huh. Not only that, there's some other things we need to consider. Let's just say, for instance, well, well, let's try and figure out if our text is speaking of the second coming or the rapture. And let's do a compare and contrast between the rapture and the second coming and see which one best fits our text. Now, if you say, okay, let's do that. Well, I'm just going to give you some things. We don't have time to look through this. I preached on this a while back. You can get the sermon online. But at the rapture, Jesus comes back for the church to catch them up into heaven. At the second coming, he comes back with his church to establish his kingdom on earth. At the rapture, it was first discussed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. The second coming was taught in both Old and New Testaments before that time. In the rapture, living believers are instantaneously glorified and caught up into heaven to be with the Lord in the air. At the second coming, believers are rescued. They aren't glorified and they enter into the kingdom as mortals. After the rapture, glorified believers remain with Christ in the air. After the second coming, believers, they 
rule and reign with Christ and his kingdom. They live in his kingdom, right? In the rapture, it's imminent and it could happen at any moment for Christ to come back for his church. But the second coming is not going to happen until after the tribulation. The rapture is a time of salvation and blessing for believers only. But the second coming is a time of salvation for believers and judgment for unbelievers. The rapture happens before God's wrath is poured out on earth. The second coming happens after God's wrath is poured out on earth. After the rapture, unbelievers will remain alive on the earth during the tribulation. After the second coming, all unbelievers will be executed and only believers will remain on earth to enter into the kingdom. So by merely looking at the rapture text and looking at the second coming text, we're saying, you know what? Luke 17's looking like second coming, second coming. It's got to be second coming. So by cross-reference, that's the principle. We've looked up texts and contrasted and compared them. Cross-references says second coming too. So these things inform us that our text must be talking about the second coming. But there's another way we can use cross-reference. Not only can we look up rapture texts and second coming texts and compare and contrast them, we can also say, well, are there any texts, cross-references, that we can look at which talk about what happens right before or at the time Jesus returns to earth so we can see if that matches our... And there are. There are some general texts like Matthew... Um, 25, 31 and following and the, the judgment of the sheep and goats. But that's pretty vague. It just talks about how there will be sheep and goats, believers and unbelievers, and they'll be separated. And the believers will enter the kingdom and the, the goats will be judged and cast into hell. But it doesn't really give us a sequence. So that text isn't very, ha- uh, uh, very helpful. But there are some texts which do give us a sequence, which is what we're looking for, right? Because in our text, one is taken and another is left. So who's taken, who's left, and why? Where? See, th- these are the questions that come up. So let's look at Matthew 13. This is the parable of the tares and the wheat. And if you've read your Bible very much, you probably know about this. And we're just going to look at um, the punchline and the interpretation. But uh, the world is pictured as a field in which the enemy of God, Satan, has sown bad seed or tares in God's field. Tares are weeds that look very much like wheat. And so you, can, you can't really tell what, what a tear is and what the weed is until the harvest time when they've developed a grain. And you see, well, that's wheat and that isn't. And so the question is, is should, you know, the church um, be running around, you know, on witch hunts trying to extract, you know, I don't know, unbelievers from the congregation or you know, getting attacking them in society and exterminating them from earth. I mean, you know, should, should we try like, to separate them? And Jesus answers in verse 30, allow both to grow together until the harvest and in that the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them into bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. And so you're thinking, okay, well, that's good. But what does all this mean? And thankfully, the disciples didn't understand very much either. And they, they did one of those things we love that they did and say, could, could you tell us the, what this means? 
And so Jesus interprets this. If you look down at verse 37, you'll see the interpretation of the parable of wheat and tares. Starting in verse 37, Jesus says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. As for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil and the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. That's that about as clear as you can get. Yeah, that's pretty clear, isn't it? Okay. Verse 40. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. Unbelievers will be gathered up and burned with fire. Verse 41, the son of man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom. Notice Jesus is going to establish his kingdom on earth. He doesn't want any unbelievers there. So he extracts them from the earth. They're gathered up out of his kingdom, all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into a furnace of fire in that place where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous who remain on earth, who are still alive, who are still mortals, will shine forth as sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So first, the wicked are collected and judged. Then the righteous enter the, into the kingdom described as God's barn. Now, in our text, one is taken and the other is left. Mm. Let's look at another text. Revelation 14. Revelation 14. Revelation chapter 14 at the beginning of the chapter talks about the 144,000 Jews that are sealed during the tribulation to be witnesses for God. Uh, in verse seven, uh, an angel warns the people, fear God and give him glory for the hour of judgment has come. So it's towards the end of the tribulation, that seven year period of time. God is getting ready to judge the earth. Christ is coming back in glory. And this is what we read. In Revelation 14, verses 14 through 20. Then I looked and behold, a white cloud and sitting on the cloud was one like the son of man. This is pretty much an exact quotation of the same imagery that you read of in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. So we're talking about Jesus. We also know that because it says having a golden crown in his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. There's two words for crown. One is speaks of a little laurel wreath that victors at, you know, the Olympian games would win. The other is a gold crown of royalty that kings wore. This is the gold crown term. Verse 15, and another angel came out of the temple crying out with a loud voice and to him who sat in the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was reaped. And you know, if you're comparing this with the parable of the tares, the the wheat is harvested and brought into the barn. You think, well, these are probably believers. Um, Verse 17, and another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven and also a sharp sickle. Then another angel and one who is a power of fire came out from the altar and he called out with a loud voice to him with a sharp sickle saying, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine into the earth because her grapes are ripe. And you're thinking, okay, well, well, who is this? Who's the who's who's being harvested who's who who are being gathered here verse 19 so the angel swung his sickle the earth and gathered the clusters of the vine from the earth and threw them into the great wine press of the wrath of god and the wine press was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the wine press up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles it's obviously not believers Okay, so notice there is a gathering, a trotting underfoot of 
the grapes, which represent unbelievers, and the winepress of the wrath of God. Finally, when we come to our text, we have to consider the king of all Bible study principles, which is context. Context is king. So we go back to Luke again, and we say, okay, rapture doesn't seem to work here. It wasn't revealed yet. Not only that, we've looked at some texts. The texts seem to indicate the texts that give a sequence do tell us that first unbelievers are extracted from the earth and cast into hell and believers who are alive at the end of the tribulation enter as mortals into the kingdom. So we're pretty sure at that point that those who are taken are taken away to judgment. And that just happens to be what the near context of Luke 17 is talking about, isn't it? The judgment of unbelievers. We've seen it. We could argue and say, but however, um, the illustration of Noah was given and Noah and his his family were saved and Lot and his two daughters were saved. And that's true. But the emphasis of the passage is on the judgment of unbelievers. So that also emphasizes that, yes, it seems that these that are taken away are taken away to judgment. So let's put this all together. The Bible study principle of progressive revelation teaches us could be speaking of the rapture because it wasn't revealed yet. The principle of cross-reference by comparing second coming and rapture texts reveal that it leans to the second coming. Finally, near context also reveals that these people being discussed are being judged. So who is taken away? Unbelievers. Who takes them away? The holy angels. Where are they taken? To judgment. Who is left? Believers. Why are they left? To enter into the kingdom. So that's what we do. Now, when we move into the second point, which relates... I'm going to hit you one more thing. I'm going to shock you about another bias that you're going to go, oh, and you'll see it. It'll, it'll come upon you like a dead mackerel. All right. <laughs> Consider the location of judgment. So Jesus is just given these illustrations. Won't be taken another left. Won't be taken another left. And when he says that, what is, what, what questions come to your mind? Uh, what comes to my mind is, well, who are taken? And where are they taken to? I mean, isn't that what you want to ask? So, so, so where are they taken and who's taken? And look at verse 37. And answering, they said to him, where, Lord? Now, they only need to ask one question. Why? Because if you know the destination of these people that are taken, it's going to tell you whether they're believers or unbelievers, right? Yeah. Yeah, very fun. And he said to them... To their question, they're asking about location. Where are these people who are taken, taken to answer? Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Now, I don't know about you, but this tormented me. Um, I was, you know, I keep, I'm always reading ahead when, um, when I'm studying my passage. I, I, I know, I know I'm going to be, you know, moving along through Luke. And so I'm always reading ahead multiple chapters. And so by the time I get there, I've really got the passage down in my mind. I think I know what it says. I haven't studied it in depth. I've just kind of been pondering it, meditating it, look at the context. And so this whole vulture thing tormented me. And the reason it tormented me is because 
When I was growing up, I grew up on the border of the national forest, and I was very familiar with buzzards, is what we called them, vultures, um, that, that would fly in the air, and you could be out in the forest and see them circling, and you would kind of march in that direction. You'd find, you know, a dead deer carcass or elk carcass in the forest or something. And, and so when I was here, here's an example of bias. This isn't the one I'm going to hit you with, but here's an example of bias. I instantly thought, the vultures are a sign in the sky. They're a sign in the sky that we can see. And Jesus is coming back. That's not what it's talking about. Um, uh, but that's what I thought, see? But then I thought, okay, I just need to look at the context. I just need to step back here and just look at the plain, simple flow of the passage. Jesus says, there's going to be some people going through the normal routines of life. One's going to be taken and the other's going to be left. And they say, where? Where are these people taken to, Lord? And Jesus says, there's going to be a body left. Now, in, in Luke's version, in our text here, the word body just means body. But in the parallel text of Matthew 24, 28, the word corpse is used or the word translated corpse or carcass. We're talking about a dead body for certain. And of course, ours alludes to that because vultures are circling. It's a word that can be used of vultures or eagles or just birds of prey. And and contrary to what some commentaries will tell you, eagles do eat carrion. And so it's not really, it doesn't matter. The kind of bird doesn't matter, but they are circling because there's a dead body. So wherever these people are taken, there's a dead body left over. Now, does that solve it for you? Just think about it. Think about it. Does it solve it? Is it coming to your mind? It couldn't be the rapture because at the rapture, what happens to the bodies of believers? They're taken. There's no body left in the ground. It couldn't be the resurrection because of believers who have already died because those people are in the ground. Their bodies aren't lying on the ground. So the only people left are unbelievers whose bodies collapse into a heap when God sends forth his angels to extract their spirits from them and cast them into hell. They don't go into hell with their mortal bodies. Their mortal bodies stay on earth to return to dust again. They're resurrected later, which we'll look at in a second. And here's the the shocker. When we were reading the text and I said, one is taken, another is left, you were thinking that their body disappeared. But what happens when one of our loved one dies and we say, what? The Lord took them home. And where is their body? Still here. So in other words, there's going to be two people in bed. And all of a sudden, that one person is going to wake up next to a corpse. There's going to be two people in a field. And when Christ comes back, all of a sudden, one of them is going to drop dead. Why? Because when Christ comes back, he sends forth his angels to the four ends of the earth and they gather all the wicked out of his kingdom and cast them into hell. Their bodies collapse and are left on the earth. Food for vultures. Now you might be thinking to yourself, well, man, Jack, that is gnarly. I mean, is there 
could we like, you know, could we like kick up the old principle of cross-reference again and maybe like verify this? Yes. Turn to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. This is what is so fun about Bible study. It is so fun. I want you to know I'm in my office all week going, man, I can't wait till Sunday and tell them that. Revelation 19, this text is describing the second coming of Christ to earth to establish his kingdom. Believers have already been raptured at the beginning of the tribulation. This is the end of the tribulation. They return with Christ in fine linen. Look at verse 11. And I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat in it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the word of God. So we know who that is. Jesus. The armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. These are the raptured saints of the church. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's taking over the earth from Satan, demons, evil men. He's taking over. Verse 17, and I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven. Hmm. What birds fly in mid heaven? What birds do you see way up there circling around? Eagles, buzzards, hawks, birds that eat carrion. Come, assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and on the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. I want you to notice that last part, free men and slaves, small and great, because it's going to come up in a minute. Here we are told that when Christ returns, what happens to all the believers, unbelievers? Their spirits are what? extracted from them so where are their bodies left on earth and what happens the birds eat them that's exactly what our text in luke is saying amazing then look at revelation 20 let me just summarize these first 10 verses christ uh, is returned to earth he binds satan for a thousand years the glorified saints are uh now to reign with Christ over the mortal saints that enter into the kingdom who are rescued at the end of the tribulation. And verse uh, 5 of Revelation 20, John says, the rest of the dead, that is the unbelievers, did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. So when a unbeliever is executed at the second coming, they don't, they aren't resurrected right then. They don't receive their immortal bodies fit for eternal judgment yet. It happens after Christ reigns for a thousand years after the thousand years were completed. Look at verse 11 and we'll see how this is. Then I saw a great white throne. This is called the great white throne judgment because it says there was a great white throne. And him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead and the great and the small 
See, that phrase, that appeared at verse 18 of chapter 19. Standing before the throne and the books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead, which were in it and death and hates gave up the dead, which were in them. And they were judged every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and haze were thrown to the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So let's go back to Luke 17. So in Luke 17, Jesus says, let me tell you some more about the judgment of unbelievers. It's going to be two people in bed. You know what's going to happen? One's going to wake up. And discover that the other person has been taken. Their spirit's been taken. Yeah, their body remains here on earth like everybody that dies and is taken. And there's going to be two people at the laundromat. And one's going to be taken. There's going to be two people in the field. One's going to be taken. And they're saying, well, where are they taken? Well, I just want you to know when they're taken, there's going to be a body left. Oh. So it's not the rapture. It's not the resurrection. It's not the rescue of believers. It must be the spirits of unbelievers are taken from them when Christ returns and gathers them all and removes them from his kingdom and sends forth the birds to dine on their flesh. Pretty grim, pretty gruesome. And again, why do we need to know this? We stated it earlier because it gives tribulation believers hope that Christ will return to earth and rescue them. And usher in his kingdom. These things are also here to motivate believers to live our lives for Christ. So we can be a good witnesses. So people can see our good works and glorify God who is in heaven. It should motivate us to. To pray for the salvation of the lost for revival. Knowing that there will come a day when all the unbelievers will drop dead. Their bodies will be left. Their spirits will be taken away to judgment. And four, these truths threaten sinners to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be swept away in judgment. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, and I'm sure there's some people here who don't know Christ. And you probably know you don't know Christ because you don't love the Lord. You don't live for him. You don't read his Bible. You're not really committed. You don't really give. You don't really serve. You're just, you're kind of going through the motions of, yeah, religiosity you may call yourself a christian maybe not judgment's coming and you need to to ask yourself should i really keep gambling with my eternal soul because i want a little bit more of my pleasure and i don't want jesus telling me what to do and I, i don't want anybody controlling my life believe me somebody is controlling your life you're a slave to sin and satan right now The question is not, is somebody controlling you or will they control you? They are controlling you and will continue to control you. You're either going to have Satan, your cruel taskmaster, who's going to give you all the sin and pleasure you want and then see that you're damned into hell. Or you're going to have Jesus who is going to save you, adopt you into his family, give you his Holy Spirit, give you the people of God, give you his word and give you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ and save you for all eternity. And then you're going to worship and serve him. So you have a choice, which choose this day whom you will serve. Will it be Christ or will it be Satan, sin and self? And you need to make that decision. Who am I going to follow? 
Am I going to turn, repent of my sins and turn to follow Christ or not? And this is what you need to do. You need to ask yourself, am I going to live for Christ or not? And everyone will leave here today having either rejected Christ, submitted to him or rebelling against him. And you who leave having rebelled against Christ, you are in a dangerous place. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, I just want you to know, if I see all this tribulation stuff happen and I'll give my life to Christ, you may die before that happens. You don't know when you're going to die. Jesus came to earth and lived a perfect life, hung on a cross, was crucified for sinners so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. What are you waiting for? There, there's another group of people, I'm sure, that are sitting out there and you're thinking to yourself, Jack, man, you don't know, man, I am so messed up. I've got this sin, I've got that sin, I've got all these things, I've got people who think I'm Christian, I've got to get all this stuff sorted out, I've got to fix my life, so when I come to Christ, he'll say, oh, I'm glad you fixed yourself, I'll save you now. Now. Just come as you are without one plea, but that his blood was shed for thee. Just come to Christ and let God change you from one glory to the next. Because I want you to know, even if you're a Christian, you're never going to be perfect. And you can ask any Christian that. We would like to be perfect, but we're not. But God, by his grace, transforms us from one glory to the next, the image of Christ. And he'll do that for you. He'll give you his Holy Spirit. He'll give you his word. He'll give you the fellowship of the saints. And he'll help you walk with him. He wants you to humbly repent and believe in him as your Lord and Savior. Do that this morning so that you are not endangered. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our text, which, though sobering and complex, reveals to us the grand purpose of your end times judgment. Yes, to rescue the righteous remnant, but to judge the wicked of the earth. Father, if there is anybody here right now who doesn't know you, who is holding out, who is putting up a hand against you saying, no, no, may you break them. May you humble them. May they cry out in their heart, Lord Jesus, save me. I believe you died for me and rose again for my justification. Save them, Lord. Do not let them leave here putting their soul in peril of eternal death. Rescue them as only you can, for we cannot. And for the rest of us, may we be faithful to live for you, share the gospel for you, and anticipate the glory of your coming. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.